Good afternoon, everyone. Now, Jerusalem or Israel is one of these places. Occasionally, when I'm home from work in time, there's a a quiz programme on television called Pointless. I'm not sure if anyone's seen Pointless, but quite often there are geography questions and um, countries and their obscure capitals is something that comes up quite a lot. And it's amazing how many people get, I'm sure not here, get the capital of Australia wrong. Um, Most people generally say it's Sydney or Brisbane or somewhere else, and the actual correct answer is Adelaide. Melbourne, Canberra, see, I'm testing you. Do you know or do you not? Uh, and Jerusalem, is it the capital of Israel or is it Tel Aviv or Tel Aviv, however you want to say it, or somewhere else? And there's various countries. And Israel, funny enough, was one that came up not that long ago. Um, it's topical just now or has been over recent months because, as I'm sure many of you will be aware, uh, the Americans, in the form of Donald Trump, have decided that they are going to officially move their embassy to Jerusalem and acknowledge it as being the capital, and this has resulted in great controversy and discussion. In fact, the United Nations, after he made the announcement at the end of last year, had a resolution uh, to condemn the moving or the proposed moving, and the vote in that resolution for condemning the American position was 128 for condemning it, 9 against. That is in the nation, 35 abstained, so 128 for, 9 against, 35 abstentions. So that by far a majority in condemnation of the fact that Jerusalem could ever be acknowledged as the capital and have an embassy based there. And the purpose really, uh, I know next week we're developing on to look at the Jews themselves and what they as a people have achieved, is purely to look at the Bible, what it says about Jerusalem, why it is a place that is so controversial uh, and what the answer to that might or will be. This plan of the Americans to put their embassy there seems to have, um, in the new year, gathered momentum and is due to open uh, in May, albeit in a temporary location because there is no central location for it. Uh, The Americans currently do have uh, a local office in a suburb of Jerusalem, and that, I think, is where in the short term they're planning to make the embassy. Uh, And they're intending to open it to coincide with the 70th, the date of the 70th anniversary in May of Israel uh, announcing their independence from 1948. There's a very slight irony in that, as I understand it, the compound that the Americans currently have in Jerusalem is in Jerusalem, but isn't actually in Israel. So they will be right in that their capital will be in Jerusalem, but the proportion where their compound is, is what is called just now no man's land. Because in the 1948-49 settlement, um, the Israelis and the Jordanians were asked to draw on a map, ideally what territory they would want. And you can actually see this map, if you Google it, you'll find it online. But the only thing they had handy was what we would describe as a crane. So they both, on a map of Israel, drew a line in a crayon. Well, the crayon line is about, when you actually get down to the land, a mile and a half wide, each crayon. So the area in between the far left hand of the left-hand crane and the far right hand of the right-hand crane was from 1949, officially called No Man's Land. And it is that that in 1967 the Jews took and has ever since been called Occupied Territory and people will not accept is under Israeli rulership. And it's within this crane mark uh, that the American compound of where the embassy will be actually is. So it's in the southern west part uh, of Jerusalem, but it's contentious as to whether actually it is 
uh, Israeli territory or not, but that's the kind of side issue. It will be in Jerusalem, although they're looking for a more central location in which to have it. It's to do with these, uh, it is interesting to Google it if you're on Google, crane marks that were drawn in 1948 until, as I say, they took it in 1967. Uh, at the end of last year, and another, there's a phrase which is often used, um, next year in Jerusalem, and I, in my innocence, thought that was something to do with the end of one year and the start of another year. So in Kelvin, in our last talk of last year, I was asked to look at this. So I'm in correspondence regularly with someone in Israel, not in Jerusalem, but slightly north of that, who is a Messianic Jew. So I said, well, what does this phrase next year in Jerusalem mean to you? He said, I'm not 100% sure, but I've gone and asked my rabbi, and this is his answer. So I'm going to read out her email. So as the rabbi says, I don't 100% understand the answer. So I'm just putting that out there before I read it to you. So this is the answer of the rabbi. The rabbi says, The story is told of a poor man, Shmelke, who lived in a small village. The town folks wanted to support him, but without him feeling like he was accepting charity. So they came up with a plan. They hired him to sit at the city gates and wait for the Messiah. One day a traveller approached the city and asked Shmelke what he was doing. This is my job, he said. My job is to wait here to greet the Messiah. Does it pay well? asked the traveller. Not really, he said, but it's steady work. When we say next year in Jerusalem, what we mean is that all Jews should actually be in Israel and Jerusalem, not just as tourists. We mean Jerusalem as it is ideally meant to be, with the temple, the Sanhedrin, and a Jewish monarch. We are still waiting. And that, that was the answer. And it turns out that this phrase next year in Jerusalem isn't anything to do with New Year or the turning their New Year is slightly different than ours, the time of that in itself. But there are various festivals through the year, uh, particularly those that used to involve temple worship, where they say this as part of the closing of each of these festivals. And they're really their intent is that next year they might be established in Jerusalem in order at that time to celebrate that festival in the way they would want to do with the temple and the setup as it used to be. So it's not a once a year, New Year type thing, but whenever something momentous happens that next year we might have a birthday or a celebration or whatever it might be in Jerusalem where we want to be. And that is their kind of event by event um, hope and desire. So traditionally, Jerusalem has been a focus of longing for diaspora Jews, the Jews spread throughout the world looking back to this time. And Psalm 137 that we've just read might seem a strange introduction to that, but when they had been taken away uh, and were in captivity in Babylon, it was that same desire to return to this city that is expressed there in this psalm. I'm slightly glad that Kenneth read it and didn't sing it. Uh, when I hear it, I think of Boney M. I'm sure that I wasn't the only person, because I... I can't, it must have been fashion at the time, but I vividly remember going on a primary school trip in a bus and all the girls sat at the back of the bus and they were singing this. So it must have been mid-70s in the charts or something. Um, but it seemed to be quite popular. It wasn't a religious school or anything, but it must have just been in the charts. I think it was maybe Boney M, unless I'm thinking of something else. And they were basically <laughs> singing uh, the words uh, of this sound By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, uh, and we wept when we remembered Zion or Jerusalem. We hanged our hearts. Um, verse 3, for they that carried us away captive required of us a song. 
Uh, they wanted him to sing of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land if I forget old Jerusalem? And it's a song of longing, of remembering, of wanting to be back in the land, to be back there doing the things that they wanted to do in the way that they wanted to do them. And so it is even today uh, in this phrase, which uh, you hear at certain times of year, next year in Jerusalem, and they repeat, uh, as I say, uh, at the end, particularly of tabernacles and of Passover, that these events the following year, uh, their desire is, might take place in Jerusalem. The temple there was destroyed over 2,000 years ago, and many Jews today feel um, comfortable, I think, in their situations, both religiously and materially. But those of them who are looking for this return to the land and promises still uh, hold to these things. If we go back a wee bit, if you're still in the Psalms, come back to Psalm 48. Because it echoes here, just a couple of Psalms we'll look at briefly to see why it is it is a place of contention, why it is a place uh, of importance to the Jews. So back just a few pages in the Psalms to Psalm 48. And at the beginning of the psalm, we read in verse 1, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in the mountains of his holiness, beautiful for situation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion, on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. God is known in her palaces for a refuge. And then down to verse 9, We have thought of thy loving kindness, O God, in the midst of thy temple, According to thy name, O God, so is thy praise unto the ends of the earth. Thy right hand is full of righteousness. Let Mount Zion rejoice, let the daughters of Judah be glad because of thy judgments. Walk about Zion, go round about her, tell the towers thereof. Mark ye well her bulwarks, consider her palaces, that ye may tell it to the generation following. For this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even unto death. And... uh, it is amazing, even if you take our hymn book, how many of these passages we look at have been committed to song. That words, Some of these words, I'm not a good singer, uh, but some of these words even in my head are easier to sing than to read. As you're reading them, you want to sing them because there are words which through the ages, from the time of the psalmist, have been uh, recalled to memory and repeated, thinking of times uh, prior to that when they were established in the land and looking to have that back again, Zion and Jerusalem, as their capital. The position that God put them in, how the city was well situated, the beautiful position it was in, the elevated position upon these seven mountains that it is built, and the wonders that it beheld for them, and the presence of God there. And on again in the Psalms to Psalm 122. Psalm 122, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet shall stand within thy gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is builded as a city that is compact together, where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, unto the testimony of Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. For there are set thrones of judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They shall prosper that love thee. Peace be within thy walls, and prosperity within thy palaces. 
for brethren and companions' sakes, I will now say, Peace be within thee, because of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek thy good. And again, words that are well known to us in song. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They shall prosper that love thee. And through history, it has been a place of contention that those who have sought the well of Jerusalem have prospered. Uh, and those who have thought ill of it, uh, we can think of an example of that is Tyre, who because of saying, ah, ha, ha, that Babylon has come and they've taken Jerusalem and look at them in the position they're in, then, well, fine, if that's what you think, then we'll send them against you, Tyre, and you'll see, because of your laughing and deriding the situation of Jerusalem, then you will suffer. And it has been a place that people have loved and hated in equal measure through the ages, but always uh, the presence and the purpose uh, of God has been centred there, that that peace of his might dwell there, that his rulership might go out from there. And just if you're sorry, mine on the other side of the page, Psalm 125, verse 1, They that trust in the Lord shall be as Mount Zion, which cannot be removed, but abideth forever. As the mountains are round about Jerusalem, so the Lord is round about his people from henceforth even forever. For the rod of the wicked shall not rest upon the lot of the righteous. The righteous shall put forth their hands unto iniquity. Do good, O Lord, unto those that be good, and to them that are upright in their hearts. And, and they could see this city and its situation, and the mountains encompassing it round, and the position that it was in, and saying that those who trust in God will be firm and sure as that. As the mountains are round about Jerusalem, so the Lord is round about his people. So it's something they could not just hear these words, but visualise them in their mind, the protection of God round about them in their lives as Jerusalem in its situation was within these mountains. Why then a place of such contention? Um, it's only a couple of verses, so without turning to it, because we're going to go back to Genesis to have a look at the background to it, uh, the subject comes from a couple of verses in Zechariah where it says, The burden of the word of the Lord for Israel, saith the Lord, which stretch forth the heavens, and layeth the foundation of the earth, and formeth the spirit of man within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about, when they shall be in the siege both against Judah and against Jerusalem. And in that day will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces, though all the people of the earth shall be gathered together against it. And it seems to have been even in our recent history that that is the case. That peace treaty attempt after peace treaty attempt fail when it comes to who will have dominion over Jerusalem, who will control it, who will have their religious centre of observance there. And it is a burdensome stone for all who seek to answer that question because none of the treaties have come to pass and still it is a place of dispute. And if you go back into the beginning of the Bible, into Genesis, I think right back at the beginning of the times where Genesis is recounting here uh, goes back to the beginning of the problem that still exists concerning Jerusalem today. In Genesis chapter 14... We're introduced to two people here, Abraham and Melchizedek, 
who both see what we come to know as uh, Jerusalem as a place of importance. In Genesis chapter 14 and verse 17, the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Kirdolemer and of the kings that went with him at the valley of Shave, which is the king's dale. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram, the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he gave him tithes of all. And the king of Sodom said unto Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods to thyself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up mine hand unto the Lord, the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thed, even to a shoe latchet, that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou shouldest say, I have made Abraham rich, save only that which the young men have eaten, and the portion of the men which were with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre, let them take their portion. So here we have Melchizedek, king of Salem, and Abraham, to whom he gives ties. And traditionally, um, we won't go into a lot of detail this now, but traditionally it was also the site where uh, Abraham was to sacrifice his son Isaac, although God stopped him in doing that. And at that time, the place was called Yere, he will see God. And here we have Melchizedek, king of Salem, and if you put these two words together, Yiri Salem, uh, you have very close to what the Jews call it, Yerushalayim, and Jerusalem as we know it today. So it's a, a combination of the two names of Melchizedek and Abraham and their references to this place. But why then should it become a place of contention? If we carry on reading through Genesis and really... Uh, If you're not familiar with all the background to it, I'd encourage you to read from here, or really chapters 16 through to chapter 21. I think we get a lot of the answers to the trouble that exists uh, today. Uh, In chapter 16, verse 1, for example, it says, Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, bare him no children, and she had a handmaid, an Egyptian, whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abraham, Behold, now the Lord hath restrained me from bearing I pray thee, go in unto my maid. It will maybe that I will chain children by her. And Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarah. Uh, and he goes in uh, to her handmaid and has a son. If we go to the end of the chapter, verse 15. Hagar bare Abraham's son. And Abraham called his son's name, which Hagar bare Ishmael. And Abraham was fourscore and six years old. So at 86 years old, Abraham, through Hagar, has a son called Ishmael. But he's then in chapter 17 at the age of 99. So we now jump on 13 years. God tells him, look, Ishmael isn't to be your heir. Uh, Your servant in your house, who you've almost adopted as a son, thinking this is the answer, isn't to be your heir. Although you're coming on to be 100 and your wife Sarah is old, you will have with her a child. Uh, And this comes to pass uh, later on that he has this child uh, despite, as we, if you read through chapter 17, um, they're questioning of this and whether it's possible because of the situation. 
And chapter 18 uh, says in verse 11, Abraham and Sarah were old and stricken in age, and it ceased to be the Sarah after the manner of women. So despite all the odds, uh, God uh, confirms this blessing of a child. Uh, verse 14 of chapter 18 says, Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the time appointed, I will return unto thee according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. And so it was then that Sarah goes on to have uh, a son. And if we jump on to chapter 21 of Genesis, and verse 1, and say if you're interested in it and you want to study it further, read through these chapters in, in your own time, 16 through to 21. But in 21, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did unto Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bare Abraham a son in his old age, at the set time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son that was born unto him, whom Sarah bare to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac, being eight days old, as God had commanded him. And Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born unto him. And when Isaac is born then there's a bit of tension in the household between uh, Sarah, his wife, and Isaac, their new son. And between Hagar, Sarah's handmaid, and his son with her, Ishmael, who's now 14 years old. Uh, verse 9 of chapter 21, Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, which she had born unto Abraham, mocking. Wherefore she said unto Abraham, cast out this bondwoman and her son for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. And the thing was very grievous in Abraham's sight because of his son. Uh, and so he sends them out. So much so that in verse 15, uh, they run out of water out in the wilderness. And verse 15, the water was spent in the bottle. Uh, and she, that's Hagar, cast the child. Remember, he's 14 years old. Cast the child under one of the shrubs. And she went and sat down over against him a good way off. As it were a bowshot, for she said, let me not see the death of the child. And she sat over against him and wept. So she takes it, they're both going to die. She sits far enough away not to see it and weeps. And in verse 17, God heard the voice of the lad. And the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said unto her, What aileth thee, Hagar, fear not, for God hath heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad. And hold him in thine hand, for I will make him a great nation. And God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the bottle with water, so that she uh, and he survive. Uh, God fulfills his promise, uh, and he becomes a great nation, uh, having twelve sons. And if you go on uh, to chapter 25, just for completeness, just for this, this section, if you want to take a note, if you're taking notes, Genesis 25, verse 12, says, Now these are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's handmaid, bare unto Abraham. And these are the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names, according to their generations, the firstborn being. And it lists the 12 of them there. So Genesis 25, verses 12 to 18. So Ishmael does become uh, a great nation, has 12 children, and then they go on into this nation that God promised his mother Hagar when they were cast out into the wilderness. 
meantime, if you carry on reading in Genesis, I'm conscious of the fact that I normally talk for far too long, and I'm going to try not to this afternoon, so um, if you're interested in doing it, carry on reading through Genesis. You have to go as far as chapter 35 if you want to get the whole story. But meantime, so you've got Abraham, Hagar and Ishmael on this side, Abraham, Sarah and Isaac on this side, carry on to grow into a great nation as well. Um, Isaac uh, then goes on as one of twins and interestingly he's the younger of the two twins but yet he is the one who carries on the line and has a son Jacob who is renamed Israel who has 12 tribes who become the 12 tribes of Israel albeit it's not the 12 sons of the 12 tribes but one of them Joseph is, both his sons take the place of two others but if you read right up and if we come to Genesis 35 skipping through all that just to come to the summary of it so Genesis 25, uh, you've got the summary of the great nation of 12 sons of Ishmael. Genesis 35 uh, and verse 21. And Israel, so that's Jacob, is now called Israel, journeyed and spread his tent beyond the Tower of Edar. And it came to pass when Israel went in that land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah's father's concubine and Israel heard it. And the sons of Jacob were twenty. So the sons of Jacob were 12, and then it lists them, the sons of Leah, and it goes on to list the 12 of them. So there's the 12 sons. They then become the 12 tribes and the nation of Israel. So you now have these two great nations. The nation through Ishmael, growing and developing, and the nation through, so the nation through uh, Abraham and Ishmael, and the nation through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And essentially... Uh, to cut out all thousands of years of history in between, the conflict which still goes on today, you can take back to those two lines and the conflict over the promises to Abraham and each of those two lines, seeing those promises, whether they're the seed of Ishmael or whether they're the seed of Isaac, relating to them. As you read through the Genesis account, you'll see that the promises made to Abraham were repeated to Isaac and they were repeated to Jacob. They weren't repeated to Ishmael. But those who are descended through Ishmael, uh, the Arab lines, because they can take their ancestry back to Abraham, see them and Jerusalem as the centre of that promise of land to Abraham as being of great importance. This is it's, it's something that you look at the news and you wonder how could... Um, how could they not reach a resolution when all these clever people seem to be involved in it? Uh, as those who are here and not listening will see, I haven't been to the hairdresser for a wee while, but my hairdresser uh, is a Muslim, uh, and the discussions that we have every time come back to exactly this. We did have one discussion once about um, Lot, which was a kind of slight side issue, but it always comes back to this, that they see their ancestry trace back all the way to Abraham as being what gives them uh, the right to the land. Just as then the Jews, and then as we come into the New Testament, the Christians, tracing their life back through uh, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, back to Abraham, seeing for the Jews that being as what gives them the right to the land. And it is that conflict through the Jews and their Arab neighbours round about uh, that still is at the centre of things today, that Jerusalem somehow has taken on this almost superhuman status because of two um, promised great nations seeing it as the centre of their religious focus. 
Um, if we come on in the Bible to First Chronicles chapter 21. Just picking up just a couple of passages before we come to the New Testament and include just a couple of passages to show where it is one side of this comes from. So First Chronicles chapter 21. And verse 18, or sorry, verse 17 for connection. So 1 Chronicles 21, verse 17. David said to God, is it not that I commanded the people to be numbered? Even I it is that have sinned and done evil indeed. But as for these sheep, what have they done? Let thy hand, I pray thee, O Lord my God, be on me and on my father's house, but not on thy people that they should be plagued. The angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David that David should go up and set up an altar unto the Lord in the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And this threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite is the same place that we're talking about where Jerusalem is situated now. And verse 26, David built there an altar unto the Lord, offered burnt offerings and peace offerings, and called unto upon the Lord and answered him from heaven by fire upon the altar of burnt offering. And the Lord commanded the angel and put his sword again into the sheath thereof. And at that time, when David saw the Lord had answered him at the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, then he sacrificed there for the tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses made in the wilderness, and the altar of the burnt offering were at that season in the high place at Gibeon. And David could not go before it to inquire of God, for he was afraid because of the sword of the angel of the Lord. Then David said, This is the house of the Lord God, and this is the altar of the burnt offering of Israel. This is the new place where I recognise as being the throne of God, the centre of where it is that we should worship God on the earth. And so when you come on then to 1 Kings chapter 6, it's, it's on in time but back in the Bible, so 1 Kings chapter 6. Verse 2, this is the house which King Solomon built for the Lord. The length was three fourths cubits, the breadth thereof 20 cubits, the height thereof 30 cubits, the porch. Um, and then it goes on about the building of it. Um, verse 7, and the house when it was in building was built of stone made ready before it was brought thither so that there was neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron heard in the house while it was being building. And as we read on, we read of those things which were put in place in building now this actual uh, temple to God uh, in this place. And finally in Ezra, so a time when this had been built, then the people had been taken into captivity and were returning now to rebuild it again. We're told there just to read a couple of verses from Ezra chapter 6. The elders of the Jews builded and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. And they builded and finished it according to the commandment of God in Israel and according to the commandment of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, kings of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month Adar, which was in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And the children of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the children of captivity kept the dedication of this house of God with joy. So here they were back in the land, having rebuilt this house to God in this 
holy city in this position, reinstituting their worship of God. And that is what those religious Jews looking for the re-establishment of this thing are still looking for today. And so this is a place which they won't negotiate over, which they won't give up, and a place which, on the other side of the great nation, following down, have equally, uh, through their ancestral roots, a claim to, so won't give up and won't negotiate over and won't, won't back down around. And hence why it is a place uh, that is a place of uh, constant battle and no peace amongst it. Now it's interesting that two uh, Arab nations, both Egypt and Jordan, have uh, had peace treaties with Israel. Uh, the rest of them haven't, and it has a as I say, this contention then still carries on today about the disputed ownership and rights to it, particularly to the religious sites of it. If we come on just a wee bit uh, in the Old Testament to the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 40. Starting to look now, not, not at what has taken place up to this point, but what is the answer to it. Will these things ever be resolved? In Isaiah chapter 40, looks to a time where in verse 3, the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Uh, every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill will be made low. Uh, verse 6, the voice cried, and he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and the goodness thereof is the flower of the field, the grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. So despite all these changes, over thousands of years it would take place, the word of God would stand sure and certain. And his word in verse 9, O Zion, that bringeth good tidings, get thee up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, that bringeth good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength, lift it up. Be not afraid. See unto the cities of Judah. Behold your God. Behold the Lord God will come with strong hand. His arm shall rule for him. Behold his reward is with him and his work before him. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and gather them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. And over just a few pages in Isaiah chapter 65. It won't always be a place of contention, but rather we're told once these things are accomplished, in verse 17 of Isaiah 65, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come into mind, but be ye glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing, and her people a joy, and I will rejoice in Jerusalem and join my people. And the voice of weeping shall be no more heard in her, nor the voice of crying. There shall be no more thence an infant of days, nor an old man that hath not filled his days. For the child shall die a hundred years old, but the sinner, being a hundred years old, shall be accursed. And they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree are the days of my people, and mine elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labour in vain, nor bring forth for trouble, for they are the seed 
of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. And it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the bullock. And the dust shall be the serpent's meat. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, saith the Lord. So a wonderful time they're talking of peace, when there won't be the voice of weeping and crying in Jerusalem, when there'll be longevity of life like there was before the flood. And a lot of those things of old will be reinstituted because uh, those promises and that seed which descended from those promises uh, will have their blessing. In verse 23, they will not labour in vain nor bring forth for trouble, for they are the seed of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. So yes, Ishmael's told that, or Hagar was told that she need not worry. Ishmael would live and he would be the father of a great nation. But the promises regarding uh, Jerusalem as the centre of a place where a people would worship God were made to uh, the other line, to Isaac and to Jacob. And that is the seed. The seed which we then know from the beginning of the Gospels carries right down to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and the Bible makes it clear that it is when he returns to establish that righteous rulership of God from Jerusalem that these wonderful times of promise of peace will, after uh, a very unpeaceful time initially, as those nations round about object to his rulership, will ultimately dwell, and not just from Jerusalem, but throughout the world, these wonderful blessings of that righteous rulership and kingdom will take place. Uh, one final Old Testament example from Zechariah chapter 8. Zechariah chapter 8, verse 2. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I was jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I was jealous for her with great fury. Thus saith the Lord, I am returned unto Zion, and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called a city of truth, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, there shall yet old men and old women dwell in the streets of Jerusalem, and every man with his staff in his hand for very age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets thereof. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, if it be marvellous in the eyes of the remnant of this people in these days, should it also be marvellous in mine eyes, saith the Lord of hosts? Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them, and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. As marvellous as it seems to us, and as marvellous as it seems when we turn on our television screens, my mother um, gives me justifiably a hard time because she says that if the things that happened now happened when she was my age, everyone would be jumping up and down and shouting about them. When could you have stood on the borders of Israel and seen Russian tanks? And you can do that today. And these things are fulfilling the prophecy that the Bible tells us about those things which will come to pass about the nations round about and what they will be like, about the situation that must come upon Jerusalem before the time of peace that is also promised 
that will come to Jerusalem and to those who are looking for these things and who are seeking them out. Finally, I just want to quote a few words from the end of the Bible, from Revelation and chapter 21. Because here we look to that time, whether you're um, a Jew looking for the Messiah for the first time round, or whether you're a Messianic Jew looking for the return of what you thought was the Messiah, or whether you're a Christian looking for the fulfilment of your uh, hope, then they all believe very different things. Jerusalem as a city today isn't that God-fearing a city amongst the majority of the residents of the city. And what we're looking for isn't the Jerusalem that exists now, but it is the Jerusalem that we are told of in Revelation chapter 21. Rejuvenated and renewed with those of every nation and of every faith who have heeded the call of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and the message of God and are looking for these things. When in Revelation 21 verse 1 there will be a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people And God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And that, dear friends, is that ultimate city of Jerusalem that we look for. And the fulfilment of those wonderful promises of God.